I spend a fair amount of time in the hospital. Um, I've been there with some of you. I like to go and visit the hospital, and I've gained some familiarity with uh, how things work, where, where to park and where to get information, how to, how to get around. Uh, I'm not the only pastor who visits the hospital. I see lots of uh, pastors in the hospital. Um, not too long ago, I may have told you this, I, I can't remember. Uh, not too long ago, I walked into an elevator, and there was an Amishman there, and a, a Catholic priest followed me. And I thought to myself, all we need is a rabbi, and this is a great joke. An Amishman, a priest, a rabbi, and a Baptist walk into an elevator. Uh, to, to get to the, the main visitor elevator, you, you, if you've been in the hospital, you, you know this. To get to the main visitor's air, uh, elevator, you have to walk through the, the large uh, waiting room on the second floor. There's almost always somebody there, unless it's very early in the morning or l- very late at night. Uh, and I, I think about the people that are there as I walk by and I see them sitting there, why they're there. Some people are with their friends, they're, they're chatting, they're knitting, they're reading, they're watching television. They, they're there because somebody they love has a planned surgery and they're just, just waiting. Uh, sometimes, though, they're there, they didn't plan it, and they're just terrified. And, and you can see they're there, it's some sort of an emergency. Now, uh, speaking from the perspective of of, uh, being high up in the atmosphere, we actually know exactly why everyone in the hospital is there. Hospitals are filled with patients because we live in a Genesis 3 world. That is, uh, from a Christian perspective, we believe that sickness and death are the consequences for human rebellion against God, which begins as the Bible's storyline in Genesis 3. In the world that God originally made, human beings were not subject to disease or death, but God had said to Adam and Eve, if you eat this fruit, if you disobey me, in that day you will surely die. They, they made the choice to ignore his sovereign rule and determine their own destiny, and we have been aging and dying ever since. That's why a lot of people are in the hospital in this general sense. Their bodies are wearing out, so they need new hips and new knees, or their hearts aren't pumping like they should, so they need uh, pacemakers, or uh, their body, their immune system isn't fighting, their body is turning on themselves, and they have cancerous growths taking over. We live in a Genesis 3 world. This is what happens to us. You, you can be more specific with some of the patients that are there in the hospital. Some of them are not just there because generally we live in a Genesis 3 world. Some of them are there. The cause is more direct. It's more easily traceable. They're the victims of, of someone who's gone down their own path in disregard for God's sovereign rule. Um, there are patients there who are injured because somebody else got drunk and then got behind the wheel of a car. Somebody's there because they got beat up by an enraged boyfriend or uh, mother. Some people are very clearly in the hospital because they're actually victims of their own choices. This, this is something we talk about very much when we talk about sin. When we talk about sin, this rebellion against God, we usually think in terms of, of guilt And we're right to do so. Sin makes you guilty before God. It invites his righteous judgment. It's law-breaking, and you have a guilt problem before the holy God. That's a right way to talk about sin. But you know, there's another way to talk about sin. Sin sin hurts. It brings suffering and 
pain. What about the man in the hospital whose, whose body is, is wasting away because he used dirty needles to feed his drug habit and now his HIV has overtaken him? Or the, the young woman who's in traction because she got high and then, then rode her motorcycle home. She didn't hurt anybody else in the accident uh, but her, herself. Or the person who spent so many hours of her life ruminating on how people have hurt her, refusing to forgive that it's bent her back and she can hardly stand without pain. Sin makes you guilty before God, but it, it hurts too. You don't have to be in the hospital to see that connection, do you? Uh, maybe you know someone who's lonely. Is, is it because they have a track record of anger and forgiveness and they've just successfully driven everybody else off from their lives? Sin makes you guilty, but if we want to be comprehensive, we have to talk about the fact that it makes you hurt too. We need to be rescued, not just from guilt, but we need to be rescued from darkness and despair. Jesus Christ is a deliverer not just from the penalty of sin, but also from the pain of, of sin. Not, not completely in this life, but you are always, remember, you are always speaking to sinful sufferers. Uh, Rick Warren actually said that this week. I read a quote from him about the church. He said, the church is supposed to be a hospital for suffering sinners. It's not supposed to be a hotel for smug saints. Uh-huh. Remembering this, I think, helps us make sense of some of the Psalms. There are moments, Greg read Psalm 38 so well this morning, there are, that is a desperate Psalm, isn't it? The psalmist is desperate for help from God. And, and did you notice in, in the middle of, even of that Psalm, it says, my guilt has overwhelmed me. I am in pain, God, because of my own guilt, the own, my own, the own things I have done. And it makes him, Psalm 38, it makes him run to God even faster. Sometimes the way we talk about sin makes you guilty. God's angry with you. It, it actually drives people away from God. Maybe God will forgive you if you're sorry enough. But just be happy with forgiveness. Don't worry about anything else because you, that's, that's the least, you, the most you should expect. That's sometimes how we talk about sin. But God rescues us. He rescues us freely, gladly, generously. Now, now this is the moment here where you might want to object. Uh, maybe you did before. Here's a good opportunity. You, maybe you want to say something like this. This is the problem with you religious people is that you're foolish enough not only to believe that God, there is a God and that he cares, but that you burden yourself. You try to burden all of us with these ideas, these crippling ideas about guilt. And you peddle shame. You, you need to understand. <laughs> you, you can set yourself free. Everybody makes mistakes. It's not that big a deal. You need to lighten up. You need to reject some of those antiquated ideas you have about right and wrong. Your problem is your own shame and you create it. And all this sin talk just makes you look foolish. It's not productive or helpful at all to anybody. Have you ever heard anybody speak like that? Maybe that's, that's how you feel. I agree with you that the problem is often in how we talk about sin. But the problem is not that we talk about it too much, but that we don't talk about it enough, or at least with enough depth. 
I want to make that case based on how God taught the uh, Old Testament, the Israelites, his people, to worship him in the book of Leviticus. We are working our way through this book of the Bible, and I want you to be pleased if you would turn to me this morning to Leviticus chapter 5. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 5 if you want, and um, if you're interested as well, you'll find in your bulletin this blue sheet, uh, if you want to jot a couple things down, sometimes, I'll tell you this morning, I'll give you this warning, sometimes, my, most often, my sermon outlines stick out like the rib cage on a hungry dog. That is not quite as clear today. It will be a little bit harder. There's general thoughts there for you to fill in. Uh, Leviticus is a worship manual for the nation of Israel. Uh, it's it's um, It was given in a specific cultural context. God had rescued his people from Egypt, and now he is teaching them how to worship him. And these instructions that we have here in the book of Leviticus are how God adapted and changed some of the practices already embedded in the culture. The Israelites were not the only people, the only nation to offer sacrifices. Almost all of the nations around them offered blood sacrifices to their gods. Even before these, these laws were given, the Israelites knew how to offer sacrifices. I, I think that's why some of these things are not as specific. Some of these details aren't as, as specific as, as we would want. It was a cultural thing. They knew how to do it. But what stands out here is in how these instructions differed from how other nations worshipped. What's notable is the differences here. For example... Other nations believed that when they offered sacrifices, they were bringing food for the gods. And if they fed their gods well enough, their gods would give them what they needed to survive. Um, rain, fertile animals, prosperous fields. There was codependence. We're going to take care of the gods. We're going to scratch the gods' backs. They're going to take care of us. The Bible, on the other hand, is, is quite clear. <laughs> That the Israelites were not bringing food to God. Not, they were bringing food, but not to feed him, but as an expression of the fact that he actually lived there among them. God is really here with us. And human beings are dependent absolutely on him, never the other way around. That difference between those two cultures is embedded here in, in the book of Leviticus. And another thing that's included here in all these elements of worship is an honest declaration of our condition before God. We are fallen, broken creatures. Under God, and by his design, the Israelites recognize this or express this through sacrifices. Last week we started talking about the fourth in a series of five sacrifices listed in uh, the beginning of Leviticus. The sin offering that we come to are sometimes called the purification offering. And we come to, uh, this is not the order in which the sacrifices were made. The burnt offering comes first because it was the most common of offerings. But this sin offering that we come to is often the first that was actually offered. Um, in order to worship God, you had to have a restored relationship with him that took place in part through this sin offering. We discovered that, that last week that the, this offering communicates to the Israelites the fact that sin pollutes, sin defiles, it stains. There are numerous examples of this. We can think about this. Think about how racism sours a culture. Isn't racism toxic in a culture? 
or uh, what, what effect pornography has on a marriage. Doesn't it twist and shape how a husband and wife relate to one another and how, what they expect from one another? Uh, what does gossip do to your basketball team? How does it affect that you, you, the way you relate to the other girls on, on your team? Isn't sin poisonous, polluting, defiling, staining? Sin pollutes. Even sin that you don't know is sin pollutes. The text is clear about this in chapter 4, verse 13. Look back at, at chapter 4, verse 13. If the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, even though the community is unaware of the matter, they are guilty. The people were guilty and needed forgiveness, even though they didn't know that what they were doing was wrong. Now, does that strike you as fair? (laughs) If your children break one of your rules, one of your rules that you have clearly said, you have clearly discussed before, um, it is right, uh, you should punish them. They should be disciplined. But what if, what if they didn't know something was a rule violation? Do you, do you treat them the same way than if this is the third violation of the rule? Is it fair that this is how God is treating the Israelites? It doesn't matter whether you know or not, you are still guilty? Huh. The word fair is always troublesome. It's a troublesome word. We have to remember, as we read this book, this book of Leviticus, that the standard for uprightness is not what you know. It's not what you think is right. Human beings are not the standard. God is the standard. He he sets the standards. He is the standard. There is no way to say this unoffensively to educated, civilized 21st century Americans, but you are not the standard of right and wrong. Uh, in fact, you're, you're accountable to God. He's the sovereign ruler, and nobody elected him, and we can't impeach him. He, he sets the unbreakable bar. He, now, he's incontrovertibly good and wise, and his standards are always satisfying, but whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not, he is unchallengeably in charge. Now, as we turn to chapter 5 here of Leviticus, the first four verses here list four specific sins that also bring guilt. I think these four here are mentioned in chapter 5 because they're, uh, they're enunciated specifically because they are among the sins, among the behaviors that the Israelites must offer a sin offering for, but they might not think about that. It might not be obvious. It might not be immediately apparent. So um, God clarifies by sin offering, by sins that require sin offering, I mean these four things here too. The Bible describes sin in a number of different ways. Uh, there are in chapter four what's called inadvertent sins or going astray sins. In chapter four, there are also in Numbers fifteen high-handed sins. We talked about this last week. Sins in which you are uh, it's no expression of a relationship with God. I don't. I, I'm I'm adamantly in opposition to God. The high-handed, no relationship with God sins. There's going astray. There's high-handed sins. The Bible uh, scattered throughout the, the first five books of the Bible. There are sins for which no sacrifice could be given. Forgiveness was possible, but there was no sacrifice that you could make. Now, overlapping those categories of sins, there are also sometimes what uh, theologians have described as sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission, you've heard this before perhaps, 
are where you commit sin. You do something volitionally wrong. Sins of omission are about what you omit when you do what you when you don't do what you should do. And these four sins here are sins of omission, good things you know you should do, but you don't. Uh, the first two, um, the first two sins that I want to mention involve oaths. Uh, uh, verse one and verse four talk about sins that involve oaths, not oats like oatmeal, oaths, oaths, uh, promises. Um, look at verse one here. If a person sins because he does not speak up when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. That is, in the, the law, it was required that if you knew about some crime, if you'd seen something or heard something and you didn't testify, uh, you were guilty. In fact, uh, they would make a public announcement Whoever knows anything about this crime, let him come under oath. If, if you don't come, you are under oath. Uh, I'm placing you under oath. You are responsible to God for not testifying. Uh, there was a shooting in Lancaster City this week. Maybe you heard of it. Uh, North Queen Street. A young man was killed. And after he was uh, shot, they, the police went around and put uh, flyers in various places on cars. If you saw anything, if you heard anything, so we can solve this crime, please let us know. Uh, so please come forward and testify so that we can solve this crime. This is what's happening here in verse 1. Anybody who knows anything, you're under oath before God. You owe it to God and your fellow Israelites to come forward. And if you don't come forward, you're, you're guilty. All right, verse 4. Here's another oath. If a person thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though he is unaware of it, in any case, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. You are responsible to keep your promises. If you make a promise, even if you make it thoughtlessly, carelessly, if you make a promise but you don't fulfill it, you are guilty. Now, in the middle of these two uh, oaths, these two oath violations, are sins that involve ritual purity. Ritual purity. Now, Leviticus 12 through 15 is going to expand our understanding of ritual purity. We don't have anything like this in our culture, no uh, commensurate concept. Uh, we'll come to it and talk about it later, but here are violations of ritual purity. Look at verse 2. If a person touches anything ceremonially unclean, ritually impure, whether the carcasses of unclean wild animals or of unclean livestock or of unclean creatures that move along the ground, even though he is unaware of it, he has become unclean and is guilty. Or verse 3, if he touches human uncleanness, anything that would make him unclean, even though he is unaware of it, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. If you came into contact with something that was ritually unclean and you were aware of it, you knew about it, there was a biblical solution. At the end of the day, you were to wash with water. There was a certain washing ritual that you went through, go to bed, and when you wake up in the morning, you would be clean. If, though, you came into contact with something that was unclean and you didn't do the water ritual of washing, you compounded your guilt. These things, you are guilty. Now, what do these four sins have in common? Why, why is he mentioning these four things here? First of all, what they have in common is they're relational, aren't they? They're sins that affect others. 
They involve more than one person. Your testimony could be used to uh, exonerate or convict someone of, of a crime. You make a promise to another person. Your uncleanness could spread to others. They're relational. This is another reminder to us that the Bible never talks about sin. It's just between you and God. It is not just an individual thing. Following Jesus Christ is not just a question of you and what <coughs> you do. God has placed us in, with, in community with one another. Sin is horizontal. In fact, that's probably the easiest way to identify sin, isn't it? It's to see this or, horizontal orientation, how it manifests itself horizontally. And God cares to the extent that he intervenes vertically if there is horizontal sin that needs to be taken care of. Do you remember what Jesus said? When you go to the, the altar and you have a gift to bring... But you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your altar, your offering there and go and make it right. And then come back and worship. That's why whenever I, uh, we ever we have the Lord's Supper, I say this to you every month. You should be tired of hearing this, perhaps. Uh, don't take the Lord's Supper if there is unconfessed, unreconciled conflict between you and someone who is a follower of Christ. These sins are relational. But the other, the second thing I think that they have in common is the word guilt. They bring guilt. Uh, there's a word, the word guilt here in these first four verses is not found anywhere else in, in chapter 4 or chapter 5. It's a different Hebrew word. There's a steeper responsibility. There's a greater level of accountability for these four behaviors, these sins of omission. Now, maybe that should make you stop and, and think. Maybe it makes you wonder, or maybe you're complaining. Here, this maybe what this is what you're thinking. So, so you're telling me that God holds people responsible for things that they don't know are wrong, and things that they did wrong, but they didn't know were wrong at the time. And that if you forget to do something or can't do something for whatever reason, you can't do what you promised. It still makes you guilty too. Isn't God, isn't God being a little bit picky here? Isn't, he has ridiculously high standards. No one can possibly be this perfect. In fact, it is almost as if the Bible has this obsession with making us all feel guilty and the Bible doesn't rest until we give up and admit that we're in such bad shape that there's nothing we can do about it. And if you're thinking that, you would be exactly right. It is not the goal of the Bible to push you to the edge of guilt and have you teeter on the edge of shame. It's not the Bible's goal to push you to the edge. It is the Bible's goal to push you over the edge. In order to enjoy fellowship with the God of the Bible, you have to be perfect. You have to be as perfect as he is. God um, always testifies rightly. God never unknowingly touches anything unclean. God always keeps his promises. Promise keeping is pretty important to God. And if you want to have fellowship with him, if you want to know him, if you want to have a relationship with him, you have to be as perfect as he is. And this system of worship that God established for the Israelites has this constant message. You don't measure up. Why does the Bible keep drumming this into our heads? 
Not because the Bible wants to, to uh, drive you into insanity thinking of, of this uh, hopeless, no way out situation. In fact, the Bible wants you to realize that until you realize how hopeless your situation really is, you will never be able to truly appreciate how God rescues hopeless people. I wonder, maybe you're among those, and there's a lot of people who are Christians who have this thought, who, who feel like the Bible boxes you in, it leads you down a, a dead end, it, it leads you at a place where you have nothing to feel but guilt, nothing but condemnation, that, that the Bible drives you completely to despair. What are we supposed to do? We can't... We, We can't meet these standards. It doesn't seem fair or right that God presses us so hard. And and if it drives you to a dead end, your problem is not hopelessness. Your problem is that you're not hopeless enough. That angst, that, that shell of hopelessness and guilt and shame that you have wrapped yourself in is not where the Bible leaves you. You may be in a condition where, where you feel like you still can fix what's wrong, that you can fix what's wrong, that you shouldn't be in this mess. Do you know what that is? That's this pride. I'm offended that the Bible tells me these things are wrong. This is unreasonable of God to have these level of expectations. You say out loud on the inside, you're thinking to yourself, I should be better than this. I can measure up to God's standards. I am good enough and I can fix this myself. And the message of the Bible is, you can't. That sort of pride can can drive you to despair, or it can send you into self-righteousness. Well, I may be in bad shape. The Bible may say I'm in bad shape, but I'm in better shape than a lot of people I know. If you find that attitude lingering in your heart and mind, I, I think it's proof that you're not a hopeless enough person. And it's not helpful to come and here and loosen the standards or lighten the standards or to try to relieve somebody's guilt by propping up your self-esteem or merely glossing over your shame. You don't need to redefine sin. You have to come face to face with the facts that you need a rescuer. You need forgiveness. You need deliverance. And that's why in Leviticus 5, as Leviticus always does, it points its readers to God's gracious provision. Look at chapter 5, verse 5. When anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess what he has sinned, in what way he has sinned, and as a penalty for the sin he has committed, he must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. Confess and look to the substitute. It is always the answer in the book of Leviticus. Confess and look to the substitute. Now, the word confess here is very helpful. Uh, The word confess in the Bible is used two different ways. On the one hand, when it's used of of God, it's often translated praise. When you come face to face with the true nature of God, praise is what results. Oh, God, you are great and excellent and mighty in power and wisdom and holiness. When the word confess is used of human beings, Though, it always has to do with confessing our sin. When you come face to face with the true nature of human beings in the presence of the holy God, there is unrighteousness and sin. I don't measure up to your standards. 
And the substitute is, is received, it's sacrificed, and as it's alter, offered on the altar, that is the sign that forgiveness has come. And that's where, that's where the freedom is. What would you say if you were walking and, and, and you saw an Israelite who was standing outside the tent of meeting and he was just pacing back and forth, pacing back and forth? You'd say, what's wrong? Oh, I made a promise. I made a promise to somebody and I forgot about it. And I can't fulfill it. And you know, God lives he lives here with us. And you know how seriously he takes uh, promises. He always keeps his word. And I didn't keep my word. And I'm guilty. What, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? You say to that person, God made a way for you. He made a provision for you. Take this lamb, go inside, confess what you've done, and the priest will make atonement for you. Don't stand out here in agony. There's freedom to be had, and God provided a way for you. Leviticus makes this offer indiscriminately for all. This is the book of Leviticus. Regardless of your age, your sex, your socioeconomic status, your class, your past. This week I heard about an uh, Indian festival. It's a Hindu festival that takes place every three years. It's called Kumela. Uh, During this festival, pilgrims gather and they wash in the river. Now, the festival moves around uh, four different cities. Every three years, it meets in one of four cities. This year, it's once every 12 years, the the festival meets in the holiest place in India, the place where the Ganges and the Yamuna River meet. Some estimate that during the 55 days of this festival, 80 million people will converge on this one spot where the two rivers meet. Can you imagine uh, one-third the population of the United States? Can you imagine? Um, um, actually, one-fourth. Is it one-fourth of the population of the United States? Can you imagine what would happen if they all came to Millersville to wash in the Conestoga? <laughs> 80 million people. The whole population of Germany. Germany's going to come. 80 million people will come and wash in, the, in this river. And, and the reason they go to wash in the river, because they believe that when the planets are aligned at the right specific moment, when you get in the water, your sins will be washed away and you'll be forgiven. And that forgiveness will extend not just to you, but to your children and grandchildren. For many people, 80 million people coming, this is an arduous journey. In fact, this week, There was a riot at a train station. There were thousands of people waiting for the train to come, and there were not enough trains. And there was a riot, and and dozens, if not a few hundred people were killed in the crush. But they're there, desperate for forgiveness. That festival reminds us that it's not just Christians who think about guilt and shame. It's actually embedded in, in the souls of all of us. God put it there. And we don't believe that a river will wash away your sins. The Bible repeats in both Testaments the same phrase, confess and look to the substitute. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John continued. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Confess and look to the substitute. Confess and trust in the substitute. Lean on the substitute. 
How much hope should you have in the fact that you're not really as bad as the Bible says? None. How much hope should you have that God graves on a curve, that he'll make allowances for you, that you by your sparkling personality will be able to talk your way past his judgment? How much hope should you have in that? None. How much hope should you have that you will be able to make up for what you have done by your good deeds? None. How much, should you ha- how much hope should you have that you are better than other people, than most people, and, th- and that God really should keep that in mind? How much hope should you have in that? None. How much of your confidence should you put in what Christ has accomplished on the cross? All of it. That's the only way that unholy people can live in the presence of holy God. Let's pray, shall we? Father, among those sins that we confessed reading from that sheet today, we should add the thought, that the, the foolish thought that we think we can meet your standards. That you're not really that holy and we're not really that sinful. But we come face to face with the passage like this in Leviticus that presses us deeply. Sins we do not know. Good things we forget to do. Things we are unaware of. We are uh, pressed by this text into our own guilt. Thank you, Father, that you have provided a way out for us in your gracious provision. In the book of Leviticus, it was a lamb, a bull, a ram, two birds, some flour. In the new covenant, it's Jesus Christ, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Forgive us for relying on our own goodness and not looking to you. You, Lord Jesus, according to your kindness, wash all of our sins away. We have a long list. We are thankful for your indomitable death and resurrection for us. Increase our faith in it. Increase our trust in it, that it would be the defining joy of our lives. Oh God, do that in our congregation, we pray. For Christ's sake, amen.